We're two friends <laughs> talk about two of our favorite things the band fish and beer i'm the lizza and i'm the kid man and today we're talking about horns horns so let's <laughs> narrow that down a little horns. bit. horns it comes in threes i'm gonna fuck something else up today i'm just letting you know <laughs> that's okay I think it's a really technically heavy segment. Yeah, great. <laughs> horns, horns, horns. I'm actually, I got really excited when you texted me that uh, you wanted to do this. Um, multiple reasons. Um, growing up, when I was finally allowed to touch an instrument, uh, I was in sixth grade. I went to Catholic school. And in Catholic school, they didn't have a music program, so we didn't touch instruments at all. And, you know, you do the whole thing in, like, third grade where you get a recorder. Everybody plays recorders and shit. Like, I never got to do any of that stuff. So in sixth I grade... Did I did uh, You went to no, Catholic school, too, so yeah. I had zero exposure to music as a young child. And if I had had not, if I had it, I probably would be more musical today. So Yeah, because Catholic school doesn't invest in their children by giving them instruments Arts, and yeah, shit. Yeah, it's Art. stupid. <laughs> um, so in sixth grade, I got to pick instruments, and I wanted to play saxophone. And I was told that my hands were too small, so I had to play trumpet. So I grew up you know, all of sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and actually all of high school, so ninth through twelfth grade. Um, I got really serious about trumpet in high school. I was playing in jazz band. I was in our concert band. I was in our ensemble. I was in our orchestra. I played French horn. So I'm very horn savvy. So let's dive right into horns. Yeah, see, so this is you see everything you just said makes me not want to have this segment talk with you because like i originally pitched it because i thought it'd be interesting because i just love horns like literally i just wanted to like get on the microphone and talk about like all the cool horn yeah. songs fish has because like they're so good so yeah, I agree. um it january march april so last month whatever april i was looking through like this day in fish and it's episode 41594 at the Beacon Theater. Basically, the whole second set is the Cosmic Country horns that are on for like that entire second set. And I didn't know that going into listening to the song. I was listening to it because of the show is famous for having the first Wilson chant, which is in the first set. So I was like listening to it for that. But then I like went into the whole second set and uh, Susie Greenberg comes on with horns. And it's just like the best thing ever because I wasn't expecting it at all. And then it gave me like goosebumps. I was like, man, I love horns. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting set too. Like the first set's pretty bumping, and it's Llama, uh, Gulio Papyrus. I don't even know what Paul and uh, Silas is. I'm gonna have to go and listen to that. And Harry Hood is in first set. Wilson, the chant. Yeah, it's a pretty good show. Chalk dust. It's yeah, it's crazy. The first so set like, is crazy. So they have to it's have worth the whole listening s- to. And then yeah. you're like, oh fuck, the whole second set now has horns. So that totally changes everything. It must have been a really good show to be at. Yeah. Oh, I could have been um, 
cool in 1994. <laughs> if you had touched an instrument, you might have been there. <laughs> I mean, you never know. I mean, it's way highly plausible that that would happen. Like, I was never taught to, like, take piano lessons. Like, I never had to do anything musical. And it just always seemed so hard. That's why I never wanted to do it. What's interesting about the giant country horns is that generally when you have uh, a brass section mm-hmm. and horns in general, you're, you're trying to cover a plethora of different octaves of sound. Mm-hmm. So... Um, can we play some of that song that I just talked about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to play the... Uh, I was like talking to give you time and then you just <laughs> Oh, I cued it. I cued anything. it. Sorry. You want the Susie Greenberg? Yes. Got it. <laughs> Sorry. I told you it comes in threes. I'm assuming people are freaking out because people are I just like the way the stage. horns are used to punch this song up. Like it punches the song up. Which is already a great song. Again, it's so hard. I bet people are freaking out because people are walking on stage and getting set up. But. I was like, listen to this show, listen to this show. I kept pressing you to listen to this show. I at least listened to the set, and you never did. Nope. Ever. Nope. It's fine. Um, but I was like, oh. And then I started to kind of, like, dig around for other, like, years and, like, shows that there were horns in. And we started talking about horns. And because you are musically trained and I'm not, you always, like, mention something that I never think to think of. So, like, how music sh- is structurally different when horns are involved. And then we kind of went into a little bit of that. And I didn't realize that, like, <laughs> if the horns are playing something, that's taking the place of something else that would normally be in that pocket. Yeah. Like, you made me think more about m- the structure of music and, like, how actually pocketed it is. Like, I don't follow them on stage like that at all. And I feel yeah. like I might start doing that now. Yeah. Like, listening for the specific tosses between the pockets so i actually did i had a really good uh jazz band uh director when i was in high school and when he talked about you know when you're doing jazz band you you get these chord charts and you know sometimes parts are written and they're very specific but sometimes you get just whole sections of songs it'll be like you know 16 bars of just like generic chords and you're allowed to improvise over them and he used to be very keen on saying, you know, you have to be careful about what you're doing because it's impacting what other people can do as well. So it's like you're, you can't just fill space with sound. You have to be smart about how you're, you're layering it and what you're choosing. Yeah, it's to. choreographed. I mean, that's like structured. You're, you're supposed to be improvising, but you, you, I think more of what but you, you can s- only improvise within a certain parameter of true a song play and keys a song, yeah. and the mel- general melody so like there's only a certain level of improvisation see that's why i train myself not to listen to things like that right but like i train myself to just experience the song as a total thing not pieces right but you're also very lucky uh we always mention this j3po's analogy for fish is like the baseball game 
and like the baseball game's kind of always the same like you know that it's nine innings and whatever and like fish you kind of get that too where you you know cavern is always going to sound like cavern you know tweezers always going to sound like tweezer no no but i hate that you just said that and i disagree with it completely can you let me i would love to just sure. finish my statement sure. because sure. overall the structure of the song is the same you know you're going to get the lyrics part you know you're going to get the chorus you know the parts are whatever but the subtleties of it are different because fish doesn't play anything you know, even the, the little accents and stuff they don't really do the same way twice so <laughs> what about that do you disagree with of what i just said is that not true <laughs> i think you're oversimplifying it i'm i mean and i think the exact reason why everyone goes to see fish is the antithesis of that it's hoping that something will be different something in all that sameness or that all that expectation that's already been set up is going to be completely different and that Susie greenberg is like a really good example like who would have expected a horn section to walk out on stage and play with that Right, but I could then sit there and s reverse to that, say that the horns in there were put in a very specific way because that's how horns have to be in that song. Like sure, it's not like but it's an experience you're not familiar with seeing. Understood, Always. and it's new and different for the people who got to see that Susie Greenberg right. as opposed to got to see him play it in 1990 when they did it the year before, or 93 was, I think this, we were just living in 94, whatever. 91's the horns tour i guess i don't think they call it a tour but right they played but a series of the shows. Susie greenberg you just made a sample mm, was from, from 94. 94 yep so if i was listening to Susie greenberg from even a couple of shows before that when they played it last yeah, before this uh again it's it's a different sound that you're getting and it might in you know force certain members of the band to now have to play differently because horns are there but right. Susie greenberg is still Susie greenberg right but <laughs> so for instance you were saying like in a pocket or a I don't know space where like Paige would typically have a solo they would have to give that up to the horns if the horns wanted to be in that pocket and in that solo space I mean it's all it's what's interesting is that it's all based on choice and, and how you choose to arrange it because idealistically there are there are times I should say when like Paige is sitting on an organ and at the end of the day what an organ is basically simulating is this fat horn like sound yeah, it's um, like a space filler. Uh, and it, when you look at how an organ is played, like when you watch Paige's fingers when he's playing an organ as opposed to when he's playing the baby grand or, or the clavinet, it's a lot simpler. Like he's generally only playing like a, a third or a, a fourth or a fifth. Even. Yeah, and he just like sits on it. And it's he like swipes down the keys keyboard, a lot. He goes, Yeah, I love when he does that. Um, That's like my favorite part. But if you have a bunch <laughs> of horns doing that, like even when we were just listening to that horn part of Susie yeah. Greenberg, their stabs or their holding parts. It was like, da -da 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 -da. so he doesn't have to sit on the organ anymore. He has to do something else. Correct. So, so you think it forces more improvisation? It, it just forces change. And right. I think that's what you're saying is that people go to fish to kind of look at the subtle differences and change. But what you were just telling me at the beginning was that you try not to look at that. You try to just like enjoy it for what it is. And what I'm saying is that it's a double edged sword in the sense that once you see behind that, that curtain, you can't unsee it. But once you can unsee it, it's actually really interesting because you can go show to show. And even when horns are not in a song, you could be like, oh, that's slightly different than when they played it uh, the last time. Like, I can't remember what show we were at, but I remember we're sitting in the crowd and I start flipping a shit because all of a sudden Trey starts uh, teasing uh, Maria from West Side Story. 
mm-hmm. and he's like doing it for the entire fucking and every time he does it again I'm like holy shit this is really fucking cool I can't believe he worked this into the song oh my god and you're like but you're so it's dumb it's not like, <laughs> that like it's again like whatever sometimes th- riffs like riffs are like in like a thousand million songs so like whenever you start to hear something familiar that's cool and that like yoinks my ear back in from being like in the middle of like a weird jam that doesn't seem like it's put together in a proper way and then when it yanks you back in are those common melodies and those common strung chords together like yeah but you're talking about teases don't teases do the same thing as horns like i'm saying that it's not always specifically a tease and oftentimes it's not very rarely they tease things, but I'll hear parts of songs in their songs. And it's because they take melodies. You know this dude, every single time they play my favorite song, you end up singing like this land is made for you and me. Plays on. Yes. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying? They pull these like common, almost like cookie cutter riffs from very classic songs out. And that's not like necessarily a specific tease. It's just like them taking your ears and like pulling you back into something, you know, is familiar. You're mixing two different things though. So blaze on being a riff on this land is made for you and me is literally the same chord progression. That's why right. I can't unhear it. Well, but what right. you were also talking about is how they take segments of songs and weave them. So they, I mean, we're not even talking about segues in the sense that they can go in and out of songs seamlessly, which also makes fish fish. I think what you're talking about is again, like what I was saying with playing West side story inside of something or um, when they used to do the playbills and they used to play like the little bits of the Simpsons. The crowd goes, dough. I mean, that's also interactive and different. Like there's all these specific, it's like an actual, what I'm saying is, is that at any point, any member of the band can sample something and it makes it different. And I think why you're so enticed by horns is because it's forcing the music to have to change in some subtle way. Because now the guys have to think about, oh, well, I was normally playing this, but now the horns are doing that. So now I have to figure out how I'm going to do something else. Yeah, sure, sure. And I think what even gets you deeper down this rabbit hole, and again, I, I think what I'm simply trying to say is that once you start looking at this stuff, it it does like take more of your concentration, but it also makes the music that much more interesting. Like what I was saying before with the country horns, and then there was the other version that was the big country horns, and then the cosmic horns. Yes, there's a correct. different timbre between both those groups of it, of 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 horns yeah, yeah one of them has a barry saxophone an alto and a tenor saxophone and a trumpet mm-hmm. and then the big country horns has like a trombone player a trumpet player and a saxophone player it's like a classic uh horn trio right and like those sound even different so when we were playing the first song from 91 and it was the barry saxophone the tenor or the tenor of the alto and the trumpet there's a lower bassier boomier trum- sure. a horn section yeah, yeah, sound sure. this one's you- brighter and bubblier and higher the pitch is way higher i feel like well because when you start putting the trombone in there you start putting other horns in there uh-huh. the timbre changes and now because the cha- the timbre is different it your ear hears it differently. So it'd be the difference if Trey forgot to stomp on a pedal and you're so used to hearing distortion in one part of the song and now all of a sudden it's like a clean uh, electric guitar. You'd be like, oh, that sounds kind of different. I wonder why that is. 
And like you can start going down, uh, you know, this rabbit hole into their gear and how they pick sounds for specific things. Listen to a tweezer before. Is that why you re-listen to songs all the time? Huh? And you go to different phases. <laughs> I love listening I to like ninety again pre ninety four. I think it is when Paige finally gets the baby grand because his keyboard sounds so janky and so weird. Because back then synth- synthetic pianos sounded terrible people will argue even now that synthetic sounds are still not as good as the original but we're getting pretty damn close at being able to match them at this point so if i play a clavinet on my nord keyboard it almost sounds like i'm actually playing a clavinet and now i have all these pedals that i can drive into the sound to manipulate and do whatever page does that he has a wah or um he has a uh, like a funk wah on his clavinet and it gives it you know that slightly different um funky like when he's stabbing and like doing the waka chika waka chika waka it gives it this extra punch Mm. and you know that helps you hear it a little better and if you go back Mm. and listen to 1991 the same version of that song you're like huh not only is this different but it's this one digital piano that he's using and it doesn't almost you know it's almost like night and day between the two uh i just hear the things are different i don't know why and And i'm just like this is a cool version of this song like and i'm just like it's different i like it I could d- I do that endlessly. I can do that endlessly. That's why maybe I guess I don't want to really know like what eras and stuff. I mean, I can definitely sit here and say I've been going down a really we saw a tab play Brooklyn Bowl. Yep. April 28th and I had a really amazing time uh super into it. And one of the things that I think is really funny is that I ended up listening to the, I think it was the 29th the day after and they played Blaze on. It's one of the few times that I've actually liked listening to the song because of the horns that were present and because of the backup vocals, which helped to round that song out. And I think I have a new, even though I still hear this land is made for you and me in my head, I think I have a new appreciation for listening to that song, knowing what it could possibly sound like. It just frees me up to like opening my brain up a little more and being like, oh, you know, this is really cool. I also ended up going down a tab rabbit hole and like heard a version of 46 days where I was like, Holy I think you crap. realize you actually like going to see tab a lot. And like I, I've dragged you to shows before and you were just like, this isn't fish. No. Yeah. I always thought it was like, a, it was yeah, like, so a, like now you're like, Oh it's shit. Like a, a legit band. What's it called? Like, like, it's like naprox- I forget what it's called. The shit that heroin addicts take to crave their, uh, to curb their cravings. It's like, it's not heroin, but it'll get you through. That's what I used to think tab was. And I think, can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. See, Cause I think, you again are proving my point that you have a very hard time taking projects for just what they are. Like, did you feel like that you maybe divorced fish from this band and you looked at them as like an actual entity on them in and of their own themselves that you liked it? I think what actually happened is that I quickly realized that what I love about tab that helps me, well, I, I wouldn't even say I did this with Fish, but what I love about Tab is realizing like how awesome all the extra parts fit in. Because it's not just a horn section and backup vocals that get better. They also have that multi-percussionist as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like all of it, like... Yeah. I remember I was sitting there watching the multi-percussionist. He's got this tower of like these weird snares and like um, bongos and congas and all this stuff. And I was like, that's just so much 
percussion sound. How is that going to work? Eventually, there's just going to be so much rhythm that you're not going to be able to hear the intricacies of the dead space. Like that's the important part that my band director was trying to instill in us. Like it's not just about filling the room with sound. It's the absence of sound that also becomes important too. Because if you keep just adding, 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 eventually you're just hitting people in the face. Yeah, it gets too crazy. And you're just like, I don't know what's going on anymore. Yeah, it's gonna be the right balance. That's like when I started watching like uh, the talking heads, like the videos on YouTube of uh, what is it? Stop making sense. The documentary they did. And you see like two keyboard start players or start making sense Two <laughs> keyboard players on stage, a multi percussionist and all this stuff. And you're going, holy shit. Like, how are they going to pull this off? Like, it's just so much sound, but they've spent so much time together knowing who's doing what and who gets the right space to play when to solo when it's like it just works. And but if you build all those pieces together in a very intricate, like perfect way, the song sounds like the best. Yeah. Gonna, like ever sound. So <laughs> the the two tab songs that I've been freaking out over are Came in Review, which is basically like a bluesy yeah. gotta jabru. And then you have right, right, right. Um, gotta jabru. <laughs> Oh, sorry, that's our <laughs> podcast. Uh, <laughs> we got that at the tab show. Yeah. Gotta um jabru. and uh what's the other one? Um uh, no woman. So I forget the name of it. The Night I was, speaks. Yeah, you love that song. It's so good. <laughs> um, That's the other one, maybe. There's three songs, and like the reason why I like all. You probably don't have this queued up. I was gonna say my, I, I my can't. favorite Tev song is like the most popular one. Which <laughs> one is push that? Push on till the day. Uh yeah. It's like super bluesy, and then gets like super like celebratory, and like push on through the day, woo, push on through the day, <laughs> like gospelly. Yeah, I we mean, saw it in a lot Portland. of, a lot we of, saw it in um, it was great. That was a very specific pinpoint memory of that song in that venue. That I, I mean, I would say that that's why I think I'm getting in the tab more exactly what you're saying. There's more of a gospel feel. There's more of like a bluesy that's feel to it. Um, uh, <laughs> just adding back. No, but even like if you look at Trey's self-titled album from 2002, uh, it's it's a, there's a lot of blues and and a lot of gospel y yeah, 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 sure, stuff sure. going on. Um, and I think, you know, when I first got into playing guitar, even uh, that's what I was playing. I learned how to play guitar by playing the blues. I learned how to play trumpet and solo on trumpet by learning uh, blues scales. Like those are like the training wheels that people kind of use to start exploring how scales and because, and, you know, chords are just three notes in a scale, right? So as you start learning uh, the different types of scales, you start learning how to navigate through chords. And as you start learning how to navigate through chords, you learn how to express yourself in these new and different ways. And I think the one thing that's always made me stick about Fish is that even with the four core, the core four guys and the music that they were playing, it was so complex, but still so simple. So you could have someone like you where you're like, I'm not listening for the, te the crazy technical, what, you know, what chord progression are they using? Like what, what is, is Trey playing a Dorian scale or a Mixolydian scale? Like, what is he doing? You're going, man, this song just rocks and it just sounds really good. But then like someone like me who's trained, I can go, oh, wait a second. Like if I start like realizing how he's using like chordal phrasing and like how they're like modulating through like different keys and that allows them to segue from this song to this song. Blah, 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 blah. There's a whole YouTube channel where a guy does that and yeah. he just breaks down Trey's solos and shows you That's horrible. what he's doing. I yeah, you never, would hate it. I never, ever want to <laughs> see that. Ever. <laughs>
I don't know. I don't think I'd ever understand it. I don't understand like music theory. Like when you speak about it, I don't understand it's it. It's like learning a language. Yeah, you yeah, just I have to learn the basics learn and you language. expand out from there. It's nope. the same shit. I don't want to do that, man. Here's a tray bouncing up and down to your favorite. Oh. This song is so good. See, I came in too loud. Hopefully that's the last one. That's the three. I am afraid they're never going to play this song again because the first lyric is Seacott was a friend of mine and I just think he might not be ready to play this yet. Is that the guy who died for yeah. Ghost of the Forest? Yeah. I was really wanting to hear this song at our show. I mean, and he hasn't played it at all. I was going to say, by that logic, that means we're never going to get a 46 days again because Lee died. Hey. See, this is like super bluesy, and then it like it'll get towards the end. But that's what a lot of their songs are extremely upbeat and like a lot of fun. See, you just cut you totally. I was starting rolling it out. Sorry, see, maybe that's okay. I just like see like this is in this like sunny and like breezy, and you're like, oh wow. But listen to the horn section. So you have a tenor, a tenor saxophone, a trumpet, and a trombone. So tenor saxophone's taking the low, the trombone's taking the middle, and the trumpet's taking the high. Yeah, it sounds great. Which sounds a lot different than what we were listening before when we had a berry saxophone, which is super low, yeah. a tenor saxophone, and a trumpet. So you have super low, kind of low, and then super high. And it just changes the way that you hear even the harmonies that the horns are playing. Yeah. The ear just hears it different. I'm not even going to sample my favorite tab song because I'm going to use it for the middle song for when okay. we take our 15-minute break. But okay. <laughs> I think um, the interesting parts of this conversation that I like is that you're basically saying that horns force you to kind of start going down that path that you've avoided for so long where you're starting to kind of go, well, this is a little different, but... How is it different? And I think what you're trying to do is explore it in a way that doesn't take you too deep down where you're like, all right, now I can't unsee this, where it's like it's just playful enough that I can like try to pick out the... the and it's it's more noticeable because it's in, it's a horn section that's normally not there. Yeah. So you're now you're going, well, wait a second. Now that I know that they're there, what's Paige doing? Because we've now talked about how that's probably the person who's going to change the most. Um, so now you know to go look at Paige and be like, well, what is he doing now? And what's interesting... Yeah. Um, I think I already do that instinctually. I just don't like call to act... Like my brain doesn't say in my head, like, oh, Liz, you should look over what Paige is doing. Like I do that automatically when I hear the music. So you're saying Paige is just someone who sticks out to you in the band normally. That's interesting that you say that because in the mix, I don't normally hear him enough. I have to like, str like concentrate to hear him sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes his keyboards just don't. I mean, it, what's interesting is that, you know, the baby grand is mic'd. Uh, the clav is direct plug in like a lot of his keyboards other than basically the baby grand. So sometimes when he's playing that baby grand, it gets drowned out. It's just too low in the mix. So I, st I have to like really keyboards like their nature, though, is to like fill. Yeah. Mesh with other things. So, again, he's not playing. these like solo like 
quiet you know him with quiet parts behind it's like there are three other instruments happening and they're all more prominent on your ear it's also hard for a keyboard player because when you think about it your right hand is playing these like fatter chords generally Mm -hmm. and then or voicing stuff like Mm -hmm. a melody of some sort and your left hand is basically like a bass line so if you have mike gordon on (laughs) bass then your left hand is kind of just not really it's filling out the bottom edge edges of those chords and then your right hand is trying to stab at stuff and be present but then even still sometimes trey will just sit there on on a chord and so it's like now what do you do Paige? that's why i like watching him so especially you know as a keyboard player i am a little biased here but it it gets really interesting for me to watch him because it's like he weaves in and out of being just present enough where he's still in his role and he's not overstepping. Like there are times where I to reference tab again, where I'm listening to the keyboard player play phrases with the horns and it's a different phrase. So you almost have to like listen to it twice to be like, what was he just playing and what were the horns doing? And it's like, different or when they play like devil went down to Georgia, they're all playing the same thing in unison. So there's these times where you like get to pull back and just like relax. And then there are times where you have to like go, wait, I have to listen to uh, three, four, five, six times to be like, what is actually, I have to peel back these onion layers to be like, what's underneath here, which I, I don't know. I find that fascinating. I think it's funny that you stray away because that's what makes me go and listen to six versions of the song, seven versions of the song to start, Figuring out what do I like more? What do I like less? Like, what's, what are the differences? I don't care. <laughs> I hear them and I appreciate them all. I don't care. I need to identify it, analyze it. Oh, man. What are we going out on? You got me all... I'm uh, curious <laughs> now. Because I have a couple of songs that are like running in my head. I'm it's a tab song, you said? Yeah. Um, Rad. Crap. Of course. Now that I have to say its name... I'm blanking out. Um, it is. Uh, Stand by. Night Speaks to a Woman. It's <laughs> <laughs> the name of this song. What's the show? Uh, it's the 20... Uh, oh, uh, the version that we're going to play? Yeah, it's from the 29th. Cool. Um, and what I would like you to listen to for once, because I know this is not something that you really do, is I would like you to listen to like... Again, the vocals are insane, and like uh, the trumpet player gets, she gets to just wail on this song, and the tr- the horns are like really aggressive, and it's right. not just like general stabs and just like okay shots and stuff. Cool. So, um, we will be back after this short fifteen minute break. Breathe. 
You don't have to say it again. About fishing. Oh, okay. <laughs> say welcome back. <laughs> I feel like you're like not looking forward to this uh, beer segment because <laughs> of the brewery we're going to be talking about, but I'm actually really excited. <laughs> I just have so many questions that you don't have answers to, so it's pointless in posing the questions. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, let's let's attempt to have the conversation, at least. All right. Um, I so, so right after you and I got back from... Portland, Maine. Uh, my mom uh, actually went up there for the first time 
and we like hooked her up with like places to go and things to see. And, uh, she went up there with my stepdad who's like super into photography. And, um, while she was there, I was going to get her to pick us up a bottle of bourbon that I really enjoy. But at the last minute, uh, I saw that Bissell, uh, posted on their Instagram that they were releasing 2012 substance original recipe. And I jumped on the chance to actually see what this beer would taste like in comparison to a substance ale now. Um, I think something that you've really uh, talked about a lot, and I think you even said it uh, an episode two ago, that your only favorite part about brewing these days is recipe uh, conceptualization. So what better way to see the evolution of a recipe than to taste substance now and substance... Yeah, I mean, in theory, yes. Seven years ago. But So I'm trusting them to say that they produced this using their original recipe. I mean, what's the reason to think So here's my first question. What, what made them want to do this? To what made them want to re-release the 2012 original recipe? I just found their Facebook post, so I'm going to read it. It says, tomorrow in conjunction with the anniversary of taking over the lease at their very first brewery location in one industrial way. So that's why they decided to do this because they were feeling like super like reminiscent about like how far they've come and where they've been, uh, which we would open as Bissell Brothers in December of 2013. We are releasing a scaled up version of the original recipe from the Substance Ale dating from early 2012. The one tastes like history and reminds us of those early days and has been imparted with all the brewery knowledge the team has picked up over the years, none in between. Every bit of Bissell Brothers IPA, 7.3 ABV. So it's funny because I guess it's like more for them. It's more for them as the brewers to see how they've had to change and adapt the recipe and how like learning their system and actually learning how to brew and just gaining experience over the years has changed the way they've decided to brew this beer. Yeah. And I mean, you always think when you develop a recipe that the beer is done and you always think like, Oh, I've, I've like, I can shelf this one and it is what it is. But I think it also speaks to them as brewers because they're able to say, you know what, this beer is evolving just like we're evolving. And I, the better question that I would ask Noah Bissell is like, why it evolved? Like what made them start choosing to do? Like, was it something as simple as like, you know, when they were smaller, they didn't have to worry about getting certain ingredients. And as they increased size, sure. they were like, shit, we can't use this anymore. We have to pivot and think about a better way because substance is their flagship. It's always out. Right. So it's like maybe that was a logical decision that had to happen with them just scaling up. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it had to do with the rate at which they had to get it to market. Yeah. Well, like you, when you're when you're young as a brewery, you can kind of do things according to your own timeline. <laughs> I yeah. mean, whenever you want to produce whatever you want and when release whatever you want, whenever you want. And then because there becomes this expectation, even when you're calling something your flagship beer, like you're saying, that pretty much means you have to have it always available. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, it, it, I mean, I think. I would like to think they just continually refined it and made it better and better and better and better and better that's what like the my gut wants me to believe that they've done well let's try <laughs> the new substance first the substance that we know as you know their flagship now and then let's go back in time 
I think you should be pouring those into glasses. That's Bissell. Come on. Let's just drink it out of the can. I think they're going to look different, theoretically. They oh, yeah. You want to see that? All right. Fine. I do. Fine. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, I'm not. Didn't they? They don't have a centrifuge, do they? They don't yeah. spin this stuff. They don't filter this stuff. I will say I do like the new artwork. I like their evolution of kind of their branding. I think that's been a really big part of that brewery this brewery yeah i mean i'm on their website right now and i'm looking through all their cans um you know obviously the bissell logo is on everything except kickflip but kickflip is the beer that uh noah didn't make that one of the other brewers made it it's a cream ale um like i don't know their packaging is not any like it just always has the big you know b logo on it um in theory every beer that any brewery ever brews repeated batches of you should constantly in my opinion be shooting to make the next batch better than the previous batch yeah but like from what perspective like like i as the brewer said well how do i do that did i just hit my numbers better like was i more efficient it's according to like, you it's all according to you it's all according to the brewer like but, th- but that's what i'm saying like if me- i brewed a beer and i was like oh man i really like this but i actually thought it w- i wanted it to be drier than this like then i would go have to research how to make a beer drier and then after i researched those that methodology and like learning how to implement that and produce that then on the next batch i taste it and be like oh is this drier cool like i hit my goal i've achieved my goal i'd be more interested to see from like uh like i wonder if it was consumer driven you know, you know, like I want something, oh, uh, maybe this is too dry. Like maybe my palate would think this is dry. And most people are going to think it's like scorchingly dry. So I got to make it sweeter, satisfy the mass. Because that's the other thing that gets weird when you start uh, like giving people your beer is you quickly start realizing that you, you, while you're interested in styles and you're brewing for yourself, you're really brewing for the consumer. So you kind of have to take that chip off your shoulder and be like, I'm not developing this for me. I'm developing this for somebody else. And I, th- I don't think that's true. I think, you think that's true? I think that's why I do homebrew competitions and submit beer. I'm trying to not figure out, you know, hey, do I like this beer and like whatever. It's like, am I actually hitting the style and doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Like, and how do I do that? I get someone to judge it for me. Like, that's basically what anybody's doing when they drink a beer. So it's like, I don't know. I feel like it's somewhat true. Maybe not all the way true. I feel like every I feel like the two things you just said are diametric opposites. You're saying brewers end up brewing things dictating by the trends that the consumers want. And being a part of a beer judge competition is the exact opposite. There's a reason why the BJCB guidelines were invented. It's because there has to be some sort of baseline or some sort of standard for which you can compare the quote unquote style that you're making for. Well, I again, I think <laughs> I think what I'm trying to say here is that it starts off with you being interested in trying to do something and trying to create something the same way that a chef goes, oh, let me look at a recipe of something that I've been thinking about making and try it. But then that person makes it a couple times and they go, you know, I don't I don't <laughs> let's say it this way. I don't think or I think restaurants use a lot of butter and a lot of salt for a reason. And I don't know that if they, if a chef were cooking at home for themselves, that they'd be doing the same thing that they're doing in a restaurant. I think it's an interesting parallel because every single time I cook anything, I change things all the time. I've never followed a recipe the same way twice ever in my life. Right. But now you're trying to turn, you know, 20 tabletops in a night and you're trying to make it. It has to be the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Unless you pride yourself as being a restaurant that's constantly evolving and constantly 
improvising and using kind of whatever it is you can find to make whatever you want. But even then, it's like when you have a dish on the menu, you have to fire it the same way every time. Yeah. So. But that's what I'm saying. Someone's going to look over at your table and be like, oh, I want what they're having. And like they, you know, expect it to taste the same the first time when they came when they came back the next time to have the same dish. So I think again, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like in the same night. So right out the gate, I'll just say I finally poured the uh, the 2012. It's a little cloudier, I think. No, yeah. it's like a little murkier. Oh, it's about the same. I think they're pretty indistinguishable. Oh man, that's disgusting. Yeah, sorry about that. This the original recipe smells way drier. You want you want to give that a whiff? I don't think something can smell drier. It's like less juicy and like less sweet smelling. It's more flat. I don't know how else you want me to say that. I don't have your uh, Cicerone vocab. I also feel like uh, it drops off a lot faster than. I think they're very similar. Yeah? <laughs> yes. So you don't think they've evolved very much? I just think that they're very similar. And there's no like discernible difference. discernible difference that what? makes me want to like drink the old one more or the new one more. I don't know. Well, maybe this was all just a fucking scheme, stupid marketing ploy. scheme. That's what it makes me feel like right now. That's what I, f- what I feel like right now. Maybe they fucked up a batch and just called it original recipe. I don't know. The original one is worse. No, I actually like the original one better. Disagree. I think it's worse. I think the malt bill in the in the newer one is like there's this slight sweetness to it that I like the I think the original recipe is like way more crushable. Sessionable, however you want to say I it. I hate that word. If I could crushable. petition the world to not use that crushable. word, I would do that because it's fucking annoying. I mean if it's well balanced enough that you could literally chug it. I, I think know. the original recipe is worse. I then I think it's better. That's interesting. It's sweeter. The original recipe is way sweeter. No it's way, way less aromatic. It's not as it is bitter less and, hot and you know perceptively bitter. That's why a I like lot it. sweeter. It's a lot rounder. It's a lot softer. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about sweeter. I agree with everything else. Softer. It's not as you're right. It's not as uh, aromatic. I like that though. I don't like any of that for an IPA. Uh. It's interesting to me. Isn't it's, it? A- it's interesting to me to see. The I would like to see. I'm wondering now if Noah. Brews things uh, in a very like traditional and or like clean and or like this dude's been going to Germany as often as he can and he's making a ton of lagers and to me that's a very direct correlation between like what he's seeing and like his passion and like where his kind of wants and desires of brewing where they're going. He they Bisselwethers has released like four new lagers in the last like couple years like and they're all pretty good. Well, it's cool because, like, they're really rounding out, like, their beer selection. Like, isn't Bucolia's the, the rye ale? The, uh, I'm just Bucal- saying you can take, like, lo- like a, that approach to brewing. You know what I mean? Like, that, like, clean, very, like, straightforward, like, that approach to brewing. And you can apply that to other places. Right. But, like, Bissell, when they were, like, really starting to churn shit and getting ready to move out of industrial way, they were just a hot bomb machine. Like they were just basically Austin Street or they were a battery steel. No, they were just making they, the first time I ever went there. They had I Lucky, which is still to this day one of my favorite beers that they make. That's the ginger, the ginger beer. IPA. Yeah. yeah, it's so fucking good. Um, <laughs> but like 
I don't know. I, it's part of the New England thing, and it's also part of the Portland thing. I think like a lot of the beers that I had from them when I was first starting to drink them, you know, Reciprocal, Substance, like um, what's the other one? The Nothing Gold. Like they're all freaking bombs. Um, <laughs> I think as you scale up and your systems change, the way that you are brewing things, you're forced to adapt and change your recipes. Yeah. Even if you don't want to. Oh, of course. You the, sh- the sheer, even in cooking, you always make that parallel. The sheer, like, volume of something you're making is always changed if you scale up a recipe. Always. Yeah. Just because of, like, cook times, like, the amounts of things, like, the way things sit with each other. Like, it, it's just, well, there's I so many, vari- like, w- even with the horns thing we were talking about earlier, there are more variables the bigger you have to scale something up. Well, and also not everything scales the same way. Correct. So, it's, like, it's really, what's it gets really interesting for beer that I never, like, understood and like even now like I, I i understand it when you say it to me but i don't really uh, conceptually understand it is that like hops don't scale up the same way as everything else because a bigger pot means biggest bigger surface area which means like your hop utilization actually is like getting better so it's like you don't need as much i just said that and i know it to be true i don't know why though <laughs> like i actually would like to understand the whatever the i guess the chemistry behind it or like, I don't know. It's also like when you upscale the amount of time for fermentation changes also because of surface area, like all that shit just gets weird for reasons that I are just like magic to me. I don't know. See, a lot of people on this Facebook post are like, why is it different? Like, what is the difference between them? <laughs> like one guy was like, why did you even change it? And then everyone's like, oh, what's the difference? Like hops? Like what, what have you but changed? See, that's part of the mystery. I like that part of the mystery. Why did they make it more aromatic? Why did they make it slightly? Sl- again, I still think the new Abyssal is sweeter, but. Why did they slightly change the grain bill? The ABV the same? Uh, 7.3 on the original and 6.6 on the new. Which means by definition, it's less sweet. I don't know, man. I get something. I get something out of the grain the malt characteristic on the newer one that gives me this sense of sweetness. I don't know what to tell you. And also the sup the the twenty twelve one, like it's like cleaner to me and it drops off faster, which I like. Oh, let's swap it out of there. <laughs> the, the original is easily. I, I don't know anyone that would taste that and taste the original and say the original isn't sweeter. I don't know what I'm tasting then that it's you so are and sweeter. what I'm not. But I perceptibly think that, I don't know. You can't say that word. My perception and your perception are different. I think it's boozy on the end, but it's just the alcohol. It's but sweeter. It's so much sweeter. Well, okay. this is interesting. I mean, I would have liked to have found out like the people on the <laughs> Facebook were saying what the differences are. I mean, we we picked one out. ABV mm-hmm. is a lot lower. I enjoy that. I love lower ABV things. I think that's also smart that they kind of went that direction. Again, I also think that it's interesting that they're saying that they're not afraid to show you where they've come from. I think Bissell's also taking off in a like you're saying in a way that takes them down this whole different road of doing loggers and now they have what's the the name of the um, how many people do you think actually did what we're doing here 
three rivers or whatever they do sours there what do what do taste, taste them side by side yeah yeah nobody yeah i don't think any almost anybody is would do this unless someone <laughs> went to bissell that weekend and didn't know this was happening and was buying substance cans anyway and then right. bought the original recipe right. Right, 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 right i like it from a brewing perspective i like seeing where it came from like i remember the first recipe that i really nailed down just like making it making it making it making it and finally you get it and you're like huh and then you start second guessing yourself. You're like, through all the evolutions, I wonder why I ended up here. And like, maybe I should go back to one of the earlier versions and see what happens. Um, and you know, shit just happens in the brew process. So sometimes a beer comes out different, not because you wanted it to, but just because the scenario called for it. And you're, it's a, like a pleasant mistake. And then you're like, shit, now I got to replicate this pleasant mistake. Like, it's just shit happens and things change and. One of the hardest things as a home brewer is just cranking something out over and over and over again that's exactly the same because shit happens. Yeah, but that's on a home brew level. Right. Your efficiency is so low. Your average efficiency is in like, like 60%. No, much lower. That's good. If your efficiency is 60%, that's like very good. Yeah, it's like a standard. It's like if you use the Beersmith app, it's like the standard efficiency is 60%. percent mm. Interesting. I would say it's probably way much, way lower every time. I mean, and also the problem is with that app is that you're efficiency not efficiency is based on yield, right? It's based on numbers. It's like an equation. Like you have to get an Excel spreadsheet and start punching <laughs> shit in. And like, if I'm mashing at this specific temperature and my original, gra- or you know, the gravity that I pull from that mash is a certain amount, you could decide like how efficient your conversion rate was on your mash. Right, like, right, right. So, uh, like, it starts getting to that point where you're pulling samples at every stage of the brewing process to be right. like, how accurately am I actually getting to where I'm supposed to be? Yeah, I mean, but on, on a homebrew scale, it doesn't matter. E- efficiency and, like, replicating something the same every time has no bearing and no frame of reference on a homebrew level. No, I think it does. I think when you start understanding your own process you even though you get a 60 percent efficiency you're still hitting the numbers the way you want so to yeah but you're the only person that knows that right that's why i'm saying it's pointless on a homebrew level you served you served a group of i don't know pick however much you want a group experiment Two, two beers that you brewed two different times, I guarantee you that just like we're doing right now, they wouldn't be able to pick out the differences between them and all you would know. Not unless it's a beer nerd with a journal and they actually like write shit down. But like, again, that's a very small portion of people. Yeah, a but slur, l- the minority. But <laughs> guess what? I'm a home brewer and by nature, I write everything down because that's part of home brewing. So I am one of those nerds that does that. Like, I don't do that when I go out to drink leisurely, you know, socially, but like I do that whenever I like that's i don't know and sometimes i hit something really awesome that i want to do again where i'm like damn these hop combinations taste like mangoes and i want this to taste like mangoes again and you gotta like i don't know i i I guess i kind of disagree i think i think once you start really truthfully understanding your system you do start trying to hit the same thing over and over 
Yeah, I mean, otherwise, what are you, what would you be shooting for? It's you as a chef. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you well, know. What else would you, you be shooting for? I say it this way: you know your cast iron pan really well because you've used it a fuck ton. You know exactly yeah. where the hot spots are. You know exactly yeah. like how long it takes to get to the exact heat that you want to do. You then will throw a piece of steak in there, and you're like, I'll know how much like heat this pan absorbs. So when I go to do the next thing, like if I have to wait, like the you start learning the, the intricacies of that, and that's the same in home brewing. I know exactly like how much warmer I have to get my strike water and and put it in the mash before to know that I'm going to get 10 pounds of grain to the right temperature because I've done it right. like every, a thousand times. Every system has that, even commercial systems yeah. that people have to like figure out. So one time, mm-hmm. uh, one time uh, I had the pleasure of brewing at Bronx uh, Brewery. And I was talking to the brewer there and he was just like, yeah, you know, we double batch. So obviously we do a batch in the morning and we immediately do a batch at night or a batch, you know, in the middle of the day. And we put it, we put it all into one fermenter. So what was really interesting is that like on the first wave, he was just like, all right, here are the numbers and here are where they are. He's like, but on this second wave, because the pot's been on all morning for that first wave, it's going to hold and retain temperature a lot better. And he actually had to like, slightly overcorrect uh the srm i believe in the second one he had to like throw some like dark malt in there to pull up the srm a little bit because it was too light yeah you're talking about yonkers but that's cool no it happened at bronx no no it happened at yonkers okay um and what's really interesting is like he also you know with the hot liquor tank and the cool liquor tank he was like yeah you know now on this batch like we need less water because everything's warm already and like i don't have to like cool stuff down or like do all this shit it was just like he and i mean that's a testament to like home brewers like when you get to that level or, or uh industrial brewers when you get to that level and you're just hitting a button and waiting for stuff to happen that still means that even though there's less of an intimacy of of like putting your hands on everything it's like you still have to know the ins and the outs of the subtleties of your equipment which i think is cool i'm a nerd like that Word. So what was the consensus? There's notice almost noticeably no difference and older one is sweeter according to you and you like the new version of it better. Yes. Got it. There's not almost no difference. The newer one is lower in alcohol. It's less sweet. Yeah. Different. It's definitely that you can definitely taste differences. And there are obviously differences if both of us have a preference towards which one we prefer. I mean, again, I would do this experiment again with other breweries. I kind of wish that it was possible. I wish it were a thing. I find it fascinating. Just do more vertical tastings. It's when like a a brewery releases the same beer annually and you save up all the same things year after year and then you can see the evolution in the beer. Yeah, but how are you going to do that if the beer degrades over time? I mean, it's usually dark beers that barrel-aged beers people do that with. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, I've done it. You should try it. It's fun. I hate dark beer, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's going to be hard for you to do. I think you can I do like it with, like, sours I like and, and Brett beers and stuff. We are literally up to two dark beers that I like. Yeah, you're getting, you're getting Ho more. Dad. You're getting more and more. And Mocha Merlin. We're at two. <laughs> You'll add more to that as you keep drinking. Oh, boy. I am trying. And it's been a long uphill road in the snow with no snow tires. It's a rear wheel drive, rear wheel drive car. It's a little skate. (laughs) 
where every time I again I found Hodad and I was like, oh man, this is amazing. And then I'm like, I tried another porter after that. I was like, fuck, god damn it. I just had a really good one. All right, uh, what do you want to go out on? That's a great question. I didn't have anything prepared. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. What do you want to go out on? Um, I was listening to a show in 96. I don't know that I'm going to be able to find it real quick, but that's where I'm going to jump to. Sounds great. It's a good year. Solid year. Oh, man. They play Gainesville, Florida, where J3PO is from. I'm playing that. It's probably like one of his first shows. 96? Uh, yeah. November 3rd, 96. It's not one of his first shows, but, uh, there's a special guest. There's a percussionist that's playing with them, Carl Perazzo. Gonna have to investigate. What's the song? Um, we're gonna do. Um, the tweezer because it's a jam chart. What? We haven't played tweezer in a long time. Okay. Sometimes you gotta go just go to the big bust out. What year is this from? Ninety six. Yeah. What, what? Give the full date and the full fucking everything. I said November third, nineteen ninety six, in Gainesville, Florida. Tweezer. It's a tweezer. Sounds great. All right. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Gadget Brew. I'm Eliza. And I'm the kid. See you next time. Uh,